Hi, welcome to MedTech for Beginners, the place to come if you want to know more about how to bring new health and care innovations into the UK market. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's recording of MedTech for Beginners. Today I am joined by Dr. Kiran Desai, Consultant Gastroenterologist and Director of Eureka Inventions Limited. We've had a lot of time to discuss things with each other. We've been working together on and off for quite some time now. And it's really inspirational what Dr. Desai and his wife have been able to achieve so far together. So I'd just like to introduce you and uh, welcome you to the show. Thank you, Kate. It's been a, it's an absolute pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you. So to start with, you're a clinician. So what was the journey that you and your wife went on, because you're both clinicians, what was the journey that you went on to take you to a place where you started innovating in healthcare? Thank you. We have been clinicians for well over consultants, at least for about 10, 12 years, each of us. And one of the challenges that we faced was that we've always been trained to do things in a particular way. Along the way, it helped that because both of us are in fairly intense specialities that we realized that there are certain areas in healthcare which could need improvement. And particularly in patient safety, in preventing never events. And as a result, we started becoming more and more sort of reading more into it. And we realized that we had become very passionate about enhancing patient safety, which then led us into trying to seek a qualification in patient safety and and human factors through Loughborough University and was very insightful in different ways. We have, during our careers, along the the sort of last 10, 12 years, we've at least seen many incidences where we had retained surgical swabs and the current strategy of counting swabs has never been robust enough in our eyes. And which then led us to feel that we need to do something better than what we're currently doing. And which then fed into developing a a small cost-effective device, which helped us seek some intellectual property protection for it and and seek further development through the company rather than academic basis, if I can put it that way. Fantastic. So that need that you established was something that you'd identified yourselves, your colleagues, and through people you've known as clinicians around the country. But also, one of the things that's important about this is that a retained swab or anything being retained during surgery is classed as a never event. So could you just describe for the listeners who don't know, what's a never event? Never event is an event that under usual policies and procedures, uh, if undertaken correctly, should never happen in healthcare. Unfortunately, this is a term that was adopted in the US in late 90s, perhaps early 2000s, and since then has traveled across to Europe as well. It's a fairly robust way of actually collecting it. One of the things that it first started doing was recognizing that we need to collect more data because there wasn't any prior to that. Although there were incidences of case reports, which have been reported since the late 1800s of retained swabs, but there are a variety of different types of never events that, that happen in healthcare. Uh, some of them who which have very fatal consequences for patients, some of them which don't. And one of the important part is that in a normal situation, those never events should never happen. Unfortunately, they do. 
And until now, what we have been engaging in as a healthcare system was encouraging human behavior. We have been told to count better or make sure that we're doing the right side surgery. Unfortunately, that is not a very robust strategy. It's been known in numerous health systems like aerospace, railways, nuclear industry, where changing or encouraging human behavior is not the most robust way of preventing a problem. Hence, we set out to do something more, which is using a system solution to prevent, which is more robust and reproducible in terms of preventing the event. Which is a strong element in your studies, no doubt, associated with human factors. Yes. When you look at evidence and papers relating to human factors, it says, you know, you can keep telling people to walk around the grassy corner instead of through it. But unless you put a fence up, they're going to keep doing it. Exactly. It always happens. Yes. And human beings are human beings, which is why a technological approach is quite often what's required. And something that I see with other uh, companies that I work with as well. So you had your idea that you wanted to work in this area. And I'm sure many people listening saying, oh, well, two consultants in the NHS, they'll be loaded. They'll be able to pay for all of this. No worries. And from a personal perspective and from working with multiple companies and knowing just how long it takes to get something to market and how very long it is before you see any money back, unless you're Rockefeller or the equivalent of, it's not sustainable. So what were your next steps in order to move your product into prototype development and further iterations? You've sort of alluded to something what we would call as a, a universal challenge to innovation, which is essentially everything that you do will need to be funded. And if it has to be funded, you either need to have those funds to hand or need to secure those fundings. One of the challenges with this is that if you don't have the funds, your innovation or your idea is unfortunate and not, you're going to be unable to sort of, you can say, execute your innovation. And as a result, we initially very early on realized that whatever we have in our savings was clearly not enough for what we were going to execute over the next many years. Hence, we started realizing that and as a result, started applying for funding, which there were a lot of there are a lot of small pots of funding available across the country. And there are obviously national competitive pots which you can apply for a bit with with a fair competition for it. But if you're successful, they are very helpful streams of funding which are non-dilutive and are give you a reasonable amount of money to to execute your innovation or execute your work packages to forward your innovation journey. There are obviously other funding pots through VCs, angel investors that, that are available to a lot of companies. However, my experience with that is is limited at the moment. And I, I agree, there are many pots. And I think we first started working together through Keel University Business Bridge, if I remember yes. rightly. But there's also funding usually available through organisations like Medilink, yes. AHSNs, and then, of course, Innovate UK is quite a big one. Yes. Now, when you go for these funding applications... The smaller funding applications are usually the most straightforward, but they're the smallest amounts of money. And when you go to something like Innovate UK, there's a lot of work in applying for an Innovate UK grant. I have done many. And there is a lot of work involved. However, having said that, 
For example, with an Innovate UK grant, you can, you always get really comprehensive feedback. So there are five assessors that will read your application and they will all give their opinions and their scorings to each of your answers. So that's really useful because if at first you don't succeed, you can try again once. Not, not more than once, but you can resubmit again, taking on board that feedback to make a further application, yeah. which in your case was successful, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. So there are two aspects to it. One is you get access to the, the financial aspect of your, of, for the company. And the second aspect is the external validation of your thought process by independent assessors who have done this over many years and give you a bit more robust feedback to say that is your idea viable is it is it feasible and can you actually bring it to the market and that external validation is i think very important because it gives you a sort of reality check as well so it's very helpful to apply even though you may not be successful it is a very helpful exercise yes and thinking on that assessment and all the things that you go through in preparation to submit your application, you actually have to think about things that you might not have thought about. For instance, project plans. Yes. I always say I hate Gantt charts, but anybody that knows me knows that whenever it comes to an Innovate UK grant, I'm usually the one that writes them. And and there's a a lot that goes into that Gantt chart. But the importance of it is is the thought process. Even if I'm writing it on behalf of somebody else, we have to sit there and say, and then what? And what do you have to do in order to get there? And what about this stream? And what about that stream? And I think that sort of comprehensive deep dive into what you need to do next and how you're going to get there is really useful exercise, even if you're not successful. And like you say, you get that feedback as well, yes. where maybe it just means you have to go back a couple of steps mm. and think, mm. this, this, this isn't ready yet for larger scale funding. We can't make that jump yet. No, no. So we've been talking about investment of money. Now, what's really important, I think, because you're a clinician and so is your wife, and you have very, very busy clinical workloads. And you've recently decided to take a step away from that to go to part-time. So you've still got your clinical hand in, which is always really good when you're bringing innovation into healthcare. But it's also a very big decision to dedicate that level of time and therefore the money that you would have generated from the job as well. So how did you get to the point or when did you get to the point that you thought now is the time I take a little bit of a step back from my clinical workload? There is no right or wrong answer for in this for any particular individual. So I'm not in a position to advise anybody. The way we thought about it was the balance between ensuring that we have momentum in our innovation because we're currently being funded by Innovate. We had to make sure that certain milestones are met, which we probably would have struggled had we not had to had the chance to come off our clinical work. So there was a little bit of it's a balance between the risk that is associated with giving up or a loss of revenue that is associated with giving up your job to ensuring that the innovation or your innovative idea is progressing in a timely manner because that might be something that might give you a reasonable income later on in life. So it's a balance between ensuring that we don't give up what bird in hand is worth two in a bush. I don't know whether it's worth saying that. 
(laughs) (laughs) Yes, I totally get what you're saying. So thinking on the journey that you've had so far, we've used the word challenges quite a lot. And we've spoken about finance, but what other challenges uh, have you come across as you've been working through development and so on? And, And how do you go about overcoming them? So being both clinicians who've been a part of the founder team of the company who um, who started with innovation and the innovative idea, the only thing that we could do in-house was actually seek end-user feedback. But we had to seek engineering help, intellectual property protection help, seeking help from external sources, so like from from yourself where we had to seek help for uh, looking at what other people think about this innovation how they would react to that innovation um, sort of the thought process and and each of these ideas had to be we had to seek opinion from different stakeholders along the way so uh, we had to seek help from um, universities for funding we had to seek help from innovate for funding but we also had to seek help from ip solicitors people like yourself who've been involved in in medtech technology development for a long period of time. So all of this meant that we did not have any in-house expertise because we're subject matter experts in in the medical area. Um, And hence, we had to seek help. And that essentially meant that that took a bit of time for us because we had to seek opinion from a lot of different specialists or subject matter experts in different areas. Which was also the perhaps the interesting part of the journey for us as well, because we wouldn't have met those people had we not embarked on this journey. So not only was it challenging, but it was also intriguing and interesting that we met those people. And and perhaps as a result, I'm I'm here today talking to you, Kate. It's because yes. I wouldn't have met you had we not been on this journey. No, absolutely. Yeah. I don't think we would have met. Yeah. Mind you, I have interviewed you on another project, so we might have done over the video yeah. call yeah. at some yeah. point. Yeah. Thinking about that, you've you've actually... So throughout my interviews, we talk about a lot of things. One that comes up frequently is making sure that there's a really clearly identified need. Now, as we said right back at the beginning, this is something to address a never event. So not only has this been an identified need where you as clinicians and the people that you know have all recognised this as a significant identified need but also it's been identified by the NHS officially Mm. officially this shouldn't happen so if it is happening then something needs to be done about it so that's that's great so when we're thinking about the other things that you need to get in place I think you've benefited from being clinicians in that you think well actually I don't know this and you've benefited from also from things like Keel Business Bridge I think, because not only have they helped provide the funding and introduce you to me, but I think they would have asked those questions about what are you doing with IP? What are you doing about packaging? What are you doing about prototype development? And so there's all of these different elements that all need to come into play. But I think at some point, was it Keel that helped with that or was it a combination of different things, attending events and so on? What, where do you think you managed to get to so that you could pull together all the different elements of things that you needed to bring into play? I think, to be fair, the Business Bridge funding from Keel University, which was where we first got some exposure and understanding or, or you can say we were challenged enough to understand how can we take this further forward and what would be a very feasible outcome out of our initial idea or thought process. 
And they were the perhaps the first people who actually helped us with initial prototype development, funded it partly, and also helped us seek contact with other individuals who could help us in different aspects of innovation, which is market survey, like yourself, with customer discovery, a little bit of intellectual property. They even introduced us to Kimmel in the first place. So they they helped us with a lot of things which were sort of unknown uh, territories for us. So they have been very helpful, but it is also the fact that we have been engaging with different agencies along the way. So we've engaged with East Midlands AHSN, we engaged with uh, not just East Midlands, but different AHSNs. We've engaged with Medilink, we've engaged with KTN agencies. So all of these agencies have a mishmash of things that that some of which which will be very helpful to you and some of which may not. But you have, as an innovator, have to learn to engage with different agencies who then provide you with some feedback and some sort of, you can say, help to to seek contact with other people who then go on to help you a bit further. But those things don't always lead to help. So one of the things that I keep asking myself is if I have tried five people to contact, one of them might be a helpful person. But I don't know before I contact those five people, who was the helpful person. So it is for me, it's like the 80-20 rule. Um, So if you you contact five people, you're going to get help from one, but you cannot not contact those five because you're not going to get help from any of them. Yes. And once you get into sales and marketing, you're talking about contacting hundreds of people (laughs) to try and get five. So, yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, that's really comprehensive and helpful. And and it's, it's good to talk to you because you've actually made good use of the resources that are available. And a lot of people will use a bit of this and a bit of that. But I think you've managed to sort of navigate your way around the innovation support networks across the region, which is yeah. um, which is rare that, yeah. that you can sort of access all of them. So that's fantastic. One more point that I would like to make, which I did not make, is the innovation sort of, you can say, the journey of innovation is not linear. And when I see that, you know, when I started medical university and started training in medicine, the process is, is fairly linear in the sense that you do these exams, you do this education, and you find that you are at the end of it a doctor and at the end of it a further training, you are a, a consultant eventually. There is a fair amount of linear process. It's well described. However, the journey of innovation is not very linear. It's not in a straight line. There are times when you go off the track you realize you're not on the right track. You have to retract your steps back and accept that you've been down the wrong way and then start exploring further in, in another sort of diagram. So I, I call it my my treetop innovation pathway. I, <laughs> so you have to go down the different branches and figure out which is the way to the top. Yes. Yes. Because as you say, they do sort of have a mishmash of offers out there. And you might sit down with someone who's really enthusiastic about sharing an offer with you where you think that, no, that's not going to work for me. That's no no use. So just looking back on everything that you've been through and where you are now, if you knew at the beginning what you know now, what would you have done differently? There are two things I would have done differently. One is I would have gone, I would have reduced my clinical commitment very early on in the journey because I feel now that if I would have done that 
right at the start, we would have been perhaps closer to the market than we are at the minute, or perhaps we would have been in a position to launch the product even now. So that is one area that I feel I could have, we could have done better. And the second part is that, that I feel we could have done differently was that we did not do business feasibility for the for the project right at the onset. So we did do it a bit sort of, you can say, in the mid part of our journey, but we should have done some business feasibility and understanding that is this innovation actually going to be viable? Can, can I sell it to people at a price that will make me some profit? Um, and that is something that we did not undertake um, right at the onset perhaps because of our naivety in understanding the the financial implications of it. I won't say I regret it because ultimately everything is not about money, but if your business doesn't earn profits, it's going to eventually fall down or go into administration. So you have to make sure that it makes business sense to follow your idea or your proposition before you embark on it. I think that's useful advice. And it reminds me of a conversation I had with a client recently where they uh, said, we're moving into a new innovation in addition to what we would uh, we would already been working with them on. And they said, previous one, we didn't bring you in until quite a way down the line. And then we established that what we'd been investing on was a direction that it wouldn't actually work. Mm. And they said, so from now on, we'll bring you in early. And I'm not saying that as an advertisement for my business. What I'm saying is you need to actually get a good grip of the market and where your product's going to sit within the market and who would be your buyers and who would be your stakeholders very early on, because that can even impact on the design of what you're making and also certainly impact on the price of the production and and if right at the beginning you know the price that you're going to sell it at you know you know what the maximum price is you can go for then you know how much your development costs have to be I think it's a very useful exercise so thank you for your time today and at the end of this I'd just like to say Kieran is obviously as a clinician and a very busy person working in his company, Eureka Innovations. It's probably best if you wanted to follow up on anything that we talked about to contact me, and then I can contact Kieran. I'm also a non-exec director of Eureka Inventions. So uh, if it's anything relating to that, it can all come through me. I can be contacted through PIMS Consultancy website, which is www. PIMS Consultancy, Papa, Yankee, Mike, Sierra, consultancy.co.uk. Thank you for joining us today. It's been great to have you with us. If you've enjoyed this podcast and found it useful, please subscribe and like and share any of the social media posts. That would be greatly appreciated. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it both interesting and useful. Please feel free to message us if you've got any questions that you'd like to ask or any requests for future interviewees or any particular aspects of MedTech that you'd like to know more about. We'd be happy to include them in future episodes. Our email address is info at pimsconsultancy.co.uk. That's info at papa, yankee, mike, sierra, consultancy.co.uk. Or you can find out more about this podcast by visiting pimsconsultancy.co.uk 
forward slash medtech podcast. Until the next time, bye for now.